Welcome to a continued reading of Thoughts on Religious Experience by Archibald Alexander, Chapter 19, The Dying Experience of John Janeway, Edward Payson, and Samuel Finley. John Janeway, 1633-1657, to was a young man who had just entered the Holy Ministry when he was called away and exchanged earth for heaven. He was never permitted to preach more than two sermons before his lungs were so affected that he was obliged to cease from his earthly labors. During his last days, he was absorbed in the contemplation of Christ and heaven. His meditations, his discourses, his whole deportment made it evident that he was ripening for glory. His faith had grown up to a full assurance and he often feasted on the rich provisions of God's house and enjoyed many foretastes of future blessedness. The Lord often called him to the mount, and let him see his glory. In the midst of earthly comforts he longed for death, and his thoughts of the day of judgment were refreshing to him. He would say, What if the day of judgment would come, even this hour? I would be glad with all my heart. I should behold such lightnings and hear such thunderings as Israel did at the mount, and I am persuaded that my heart would leap for joy. The meditation of that day has even ravished my soul, and the thoughts of its certainty and nearness are more refreshing to my soul than all earthly comforts. Surely nothing can more revive my spirit than to behold the blessed Jesus, who is the life and joy of my soul. When he began to sink rapidly under his complaint, his soul was so devoutly occupied in the contemplation of Christ and heaven that he almost forgot his pains and sickness. His faith, his love, and his joy exceedingly abounded. He would frequently exclaim, Oh, that I could let you know what I feel. Oh, that I could show you what I now see. Oh, that I could express the thousandth part of that sweetness which I now find in Christ. You would think then all think it worthwhile to make religion your chief business. Oh, my dear friends, you little think what Christ is worth upon a deathbed. I would not now for a world, nay, for a million worlds, be without Christ and pardon. I would not for a world live any longer, and the very thought of a possibility of recovery makes me tremble. I do tell you that I so long to be with Christ that I could be content to be cut in pieces and put to the most exquisite tortures, so I might not die, but die and be with Christ. Oh, how sweet Jesus is. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Death, do thy worst. Death hath lost its terrors. Through grace I can say, death is nothing to me. I can as easily die as shut my eyes. I long to die. I long to be with Christ. He charged his friends most earnestly not to pray for his life. Oh, the glory, the unspeakable glory which I behold. My heart is full. My heart is full. Christ smiles and I am constrained to smile. Can you find it in your hearts to stop me? Now I am going to the complete and eternal enjoyment of Christ. Would you keep me from my crown? The arms of my blessed Saviour are open to receive me. The angels stand ready to carry my soul into his bosom. Oh, did you but see what I see? You would cry out with me, Dear Lord, how long? Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Oh, why are thy chariot wheels so long in coming? A minister, having spoken to him of the joys of heaven, 
he said. Sir, I feel something of it. My heart is as full as it can hold in this lower state. I can hold no more. Oh, that I could but let you know what I feel. Who am I, Lord? Who am I that thou shouldest be mindful of me? Why me, Lord, why me, and pass by thousands to look on such a wretch as I? Oh, what shall I say t- unto thee, thou preserver of men? O oh, blessed and forever blessed be free grace. Why is it, Lord, thou shouldest manifest thyself unto me, and not to others? Even so, Father, because it seemed good in thy sight. Thou wilt have mercy, because thou wilt have mercy. And if thou wilt look on such a poor worm, who can hinder? Who would not love thee, O blessed Father? O how sweet and gracious hast thou been to me! O that he should have me in his thoughts before the foundation of the world! On one occasion, after his brother had been praying with him, his joys became unutterable. He broke out with such exclamations as these, O he is come, he is come! How sweet, how glorious is the blessed Jesus! He is altogether lovely. How shall I speak the thousandth part of his praise? Oh, for words to set forth a little part of his excellency. Come, look on a dying man and wonder. Was there ever greater kindness? Were there ever more sensible manifestations of grace? Oh, why me, Lord, why me? Surely this is a kinder heaven. And if I were never to enjoy more than this, it is more than a sufficient recompense for all that men and devils could inflict. If this be dying, it is sweet. The bed is soft. Christ's arms and smiles and love surely would turn hell into heaven. Oh, that you did but see and feel what I do. Behold a dying man, more cheerful than you ever saw a man in health, in the midst of his sweetest worldly enjoyments. Oh, sirs, worldly pleasures are poor, pitiful, sorry things, when compared with this glory in my soul. How often exhorted, he often exhorted those around him to assist him in his praises. Oh, said he, help me to praise God. Henceforth, through eternity, I have nothing else to do but to love and praise the Lord. I cannot tell what to pray for, which is not already given me. I want only one thing, and that is a speedy lift to heaven. I expect no more here. I desire no more. I can bear no more. Oh, praise, praise. Praise that boundless love which has wonderfully looked upon my soul and has done more for me than for thousands of his children. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. O my friends, help me, help me to admire and praise him who has done such astonishing wonders for my soul. He has pardoned all my sins and filled me with his goodness. He has given me grace and glory, and no good thing has he withheld from me. All ye mighty angels, help me to praise God, that everything that he has been, help me to praise him. Praise is my work now, and will be my work forever. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. A few hours before his death, he had his mother and brothers and sisters called around his bed, when in a most solemn and affecting manner he addressed himself in turn to each and took leave of them. To his mother he offered his thanks for her tender love and expressed his desire that she might see Christ formed in the hearts of all her children 
and make them whole with joy at the day of judgment. Then he took his brothers and sisters in order and offered an appropriate petition for each. He then said, Oh, that none of us may be found among the unconverted in the day of judgment. Oh, that we may all appear with our honored father and dear mother before Christ with joy. Oh, that we may live to God here and live with God hereafter. And now, my dear mother, brothers and sisters, farewell. His last words were, My work is done. I have fought a good fight, etc. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. After which he immediately expired. <clears throat> no man in our country has left behind him a higher character of eminent piety than the Reverend Edward Payson, 1783-1827. His views and exercises, when near death, will, an- will answer well to be placed by the side of those of John Janeway. When this faithful pastor found that his end was approaching, he felt a strong desire to address some advice to his flock. He therefore had it announced from the pulpit that he would be pleased to see as many of them as could make it convenient to come to his house, and appointed them a time. To them, when assembled, he spoke nearly as follows. It has often been remarked that people who have gone to the other world cannot come back to tell us what they have seen. But I am so near the eternal world that I can see almost as clearly as, as if I were there, and I see enough to satisfy myself, at least, of the truth of the doctrines which I have preached. I do not know that I should feel at all sure that I have been there. It is always interesting to see others in a situation in which we know we must shortly be placed ourselves, and we all know that we must die and to see a poor creature when, after an alternation of hopes and fears, he finds that his disease is mortal, and death comes to tear him away from everything he loves, and crowds him to the very verge of the precipice of destruction, and then thrusts him down headlong. There he is, cast into an unknown world, no friend, no saviour to receive him. Oh, how different is this from the state of a man who is prepared to die, He is not obliged to be crowded along, but the other world comes like a great magnet to draw him away from this. And he knows that he is going to enjoy, and not only knows, but begins to taste it. Perfect happiness, forever, forever, and ever. And now God is in this room. I see him, and though unspeakably lovely and glorious does he appear, worthy of ten thousand hearts. If we had so many, he is here, and hears me pleading with the creatures that he has made, whom he preserves and loads with blessings to love him. Now, oh, how terrible does it appear to me to sin against this God, to set up our wills in opposition to his. It makes my blood run cold to think how miserable I should now be without religion, to lie here and see myself tottering on the verge of destruction. Oh, I should be distracted. And when I see my fellow creatures in this situation, I am in an agony for them, that they may escape the danger before it is too late. Suppose we should hear the sound of someone pleading earnestly with another, and we should inquire, what is the man pleading for so earnestly? Oh, he's only pleading with a fellow creature to love his God, his Saviour, his Preserver, his Benefactor. 
He's only pleading with him not to throw away his immortal soul, not to pull down everlasting wretchedness on his own head. He's only persuading him to avoid eternal misery and accept eternal happiness. Is it possible, we should explain, that any persuasion can be necessary for this? And yet it is necessary. Oh, my friends, do, do love this glorious being. Do seek the salvation of your immortal souls. Hear the voice of your dying minister while he entreats you to care for your souls. On another occasion he said, I find satisfaction in looking at nothing that I have done. I have not fought, but Christ has fought for me. I have not run, but Christ has carried me. I have not worked, but Christ has wrought in me. Christ has done all. The perfections of God were to him a wellspring of joy, and the promises were breaths of consolation, whence his soul drew element and comfort. Oh, exclaimed he, the loving kindness of God, his loving kindness. This afternoon, while I was meditating, the Lord seemed to pass by and proclaim himself. The Lord God, merciful and gracious, oh, how gracious, try to conceive of that his loving kindness as if it were enough to say kindness but loving kindness what must be the loving kindness of the Lord who is himself infinite in love it seemed as if Christ had said to me you have often wondered and been impatient of the way by which I have led you but what do you do think, what do you think of it now and I was cut to the heart when I looked back and saw the goodness by which I had been guided that I could ever, for a moment, distrust his love. To a minister who called upon him, he said that the point in which he believed ministers failed most, and which he had certainly failed most, was in doing duty professionally and not from the heart. He said also, I have never valued, as I ought, the doctrines which I have preached. The system is great and glorious, and is worthy of our utmost efforts to promote it. The interest depending will justify us in our strongest measures. In every respect, we may bark are all upon it. It will sustain us. I was never fit to say a word to a sinner, except when I had a broken heart myself, when I was subdued and melted into penitence, and felt just as if I had received pardon to my own soul, and when my heart was full of tenderness and pity, he seemed to be greatly affected with the view of the grace of God in saving lost men, and especially when it should be bestowed on one so ill-deserving as himself. Oh, how sovereign! Oh, how sovereign! Grace is the only thing that can make us like God. I might be dragged through heaven, earth, and hell, and I should still be the same sinful, polluted wretch, unless God himself should renew and cleanse me. In conversation with his eldest daughter, being asked whether self-examination was not a very difficult duty for young Christians, yes, he replied, and for old ones too, because it is displeasing to the pride of the heart, because wandering thoughts are then apt to intrude, and because of the deceitfulness of the heart. When a Christian first looks into his heart, he sees nothing but confusion, a heap of sins, and very little good mixed up together, and he knows on how to separate them, or how to begin self-examination. 
But let him persevere in his efforts, and order will arise out of confusion. She mentioned to him a passage in the life of Joseph Allen, 1634-1668, which led him to say, We never confess any faults that we really think disgraceful. We complain of our hardness of heart, stupidity, etc. But we never confess envy, covetousness, and revenge, or anything that we suppose will lower us in the opinion of others. And this proves that we do not feel ashamed of coldness and stupidity. In short, when young Christians make confessions, unless there is obvious call for it, it commonly proceeds from one of the following motives. Either they wish to be thought very humble, or to possess great knowledge of their own hearts, or they think it is a fault which the other has perceived, and they are willing to have the credit of having discovered and striven against it, or they confess some fault from which they are remarkably free in order to elicit a compliment. Basin's solicitude for the welfare of his people was so great that though he had given them one solemn address, he was not contented with that, but sent for particular classes of them. On one day he had the young men of the congregation assembled around him when he delivered to them a peculiar, solemn, rent tender, and appropriate exhortation. He also sent an affectionate valedictory address to the association of ministers with whom he had been connected. The substance of it was a hearty assurance of the ardent love with which he remembered them even in death, an exhortation to love one another with a pure heart fervently, to love their work, to be diligent in it, to expect success, and to bear up under discouragement, to be faithful unto death, and to look for the reward in heaven. While speaking of the rapturous views which he had of heaven, he was asked if it did not appear like the clear light of vision rather than that of faith. He said, I don't know. It is too much for the poor eyes of my soul to bear. They are almost blinded with the excessive brightness. All I want is to be a mirror, to reflect some of those rays to those around me. My soul, instead of growing weaker and more languishing as my body does, seems to be endued with an angel's energies and to be ready to break from the body and join those around the throne. When asked whether it was now incredible to him that the martyrs should rejoice in the flames and on the rack, no, said he, I can easily believe it. I have suffered twenty times as much as I could in being burnt at the stake, while my joy in God so abounded as to render my sufferings not only tolerable but welcome. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. At another time he said, God is now literally my all in all. While he is present with me, no event can in the least diminish my happiness. And were the whole world at my feet, trying to minister to my comfort, they could not add one drop to the cup. It seems as if the promise to wipe away all tears is already accomplished as it relates to tears of sorrow. I have no tears to shed now, but tears of love, joy, and thankfulness. Shortly before his decrease, he was heard to break forth in a soliloquy in which the following is a specimen. What an assemblage of motives to holiness does the gospel present? 
I am a Christian. What then? I am a redeemed sinner, a pardoned rebel, all through grace. And by the most wonderful means which infinite wisdom could devise. I am a Christian. What then? Why, I am a temple of God, and surely I ought to be pure and holy. I am a Christian. What then? Why, I am a child of God, and ought to be filled with filial love, and reverence, and joy, and gratitude. I am a Christian. What then? Why, I am a disciple of Christ, and must imitate him who was meek and lowly of heart, and please not himself. I am a Christian. What then? Why, I am an heir of heaven, and hastening on to the abodes of the blessed. It seems as if my soul had found a pair of new wings, and was so eager to try them, that in her fluttering she would rend the fine network of the body to pieces. He had the choir to come in and sing for him, and chose the hymn, Rise My Soul, etc. Soon afterwards he expired. October the 21st, 1827. The Reverend Samuel Finley, who had been for some time president of New Jersey College, upon being informed by his physicians that his disease was incurable, expressed his entire resignation and exclaimed, Welcome, Lord Jesus. On the Sabbath preceding his death, Dr. Clarkson, one of his physicians, told him that he observed a manifest alteration and that he could not live many days. He said, May the Lord bring me near himself. I have been waiting with a cane and hunger for the promised land. I have often wondered what, that God suffered me to live. I have more wondered that he ever called me to be a minister of his word. He has often afforded me much strength, which I have abused. He has returned in mercy. Oh, how faithful are the promises of God. Oh, that I could see him as I have seen him before in his sanctuary. Although I have as earnestly desired death as a hiding pants for the evening shade, yet will I wait all the days of my appointed time. I have often struggled with principalities and power, powers and have been brought to the borders of despair. Lord, let it suffice. He then closed his eyes and sat up and prayed fervently that God would show him his glory before he departed hence, that he would enable him to endure patiently to the end, and particularly that he might be kept from dishonouring the ministry. He then resumed his discourse and said, I can truly say that I have loved the service of God. I know not in what language to speak of my own unworthiness. I have been undutiful. I have honestly endeavoured to act with God, but with much weakness and corruption. Then lying down again, he said, a Christian's death is the best part of his experience. The Lord has made provision for the whole way, provision for the soul, and provision for the body. The Lord has given me many souls as a crown of my rejoicing. Blessed be God, eternal rest is at hand. Eternity is but long enough to enjoy my God. This, this has animated me in my severe studies. I was ashamed to take rest here. Oh, that I could be filled with the fullness of God, that fullness which fills heaven. Being asked whether he would choose to live or die, he said to die. Though I cannot but feel the same strait that Paul did, 
when he knew not which to choose, for to me to live as Christ, and to die is gain. But should God, by a miracle, prolong my life, I would still continue to serve him. His service has been sweet to me. I have loved it much. I have tried my master's yoke, and will never shrink my neck from it. His yoke is easy, and his burden is light. One said to him, You are more cheerful and vigorous, sir. Yes, I rise or fall, as eternal life seems nearer or further off. It being remarked that he always used the appellation, Dear Lord, in his prayers, he answered, Oh, he is very dear, very precious indeed. How pretty is it for a minister to die on the Sabbath? I expect to spend the remainder of this Sabbath in heaven, one said. You will soon join the blessed society of heaven. You will forever hold converse with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and with the spirits of the just made perfect. With old friends and many old-fashioned people. Yes, sir, he replied with a smile. But they are most polite people now. He expressed great gratitude to his friends around him and said, May the Lord repay you for your tenderness to me. May he bless you abundantly, not only with temporal but with spiritual blessings. Turning to his wife, he said, My dear, I expect to see you shortly in glory. Seeing a member of the Second Presbyterian Church present, he said, I have often preached and prayed among you, my dear sir, and the doctrines I preached are now my support, and blessed be God, they are without a flaw. May the Lord bless and preserve your church. He designed good for it yet, I trust. To a person from Princeton, he said, Give my love to the people of Princeton, and tell them that I am going to die, and that I am not afraid to die. He would sometimes cry out, The Lord Jesus will take care of his cause in the world. Upon waking next morning, he exclaimed, Oh, what a disappointment I have met with. I expected this morning to have been in heaven. On account of his extreme weakness, he was unable to speak much during the day, but all that he said was in the language of triumph. Next morning, with a pleasing smile in his countenance, he cried out, Oh, I shall triumph over every foe. The Lord has given me the victory. Now I know that it is impossible that faith should not triumph over earth and hell. I exult, I triumph. Oh, that I could see untainted purity. I think I have nothing to do but die. Yet perhaps I have. Lord, show me my task. He then said, Lord Jesus, into thy hands I commit my spirit. I do it with confidence. I do it with full assurance. I know that thou wilt keep that which I have committed to thee. I have been dreaming too fast of the time of my departure, for I find it does not yet come. But the Lord is faithful, and will not tarry beyond the appointed time. In the afternoon, the Reverend Mr. Spencer came to see him, and said, I have come, dear sir, to see you confirmed by facts the gospel you have been preaching. Pray, sir, how do you feel? To which he replied, Full of triumph, I triumph through Christ. Nothing clipped my wings but the thoughts of my disillusion being prolonged. Oh, that it were tonight. 
My very soul thirsts for eternal rest. And if to spend to ask him what he saw in eternity, to excite, to vehement desires in his soul, he said, I see the eternal love and goodness of God. I see the fullness of the mediator. I see the love of Jesus. Oh, to be dissolved and to be with him. I long to be clothed with complete, the complete righteousness of Christ. He then requested Mr. Spencer to pray with him before they parted and said, I have gained the victory over the devil. Pray to God to preserve me from evil, to keep me from evil in this critical hour and to support me with his presence through the valley of the shadow of death. He spent the remainder of the day in taking an affectionate and solemn leave of his friends and exhorting such of his children as were with him. On the next day, July the 16th, the conflict was terminated. He was no longer able to speak, but a friend having desired him to give a token by which his friends might know whether he still continued to triumph, he lifted up his hand and uttered the word, Yes. About nine o'clock, he fell into a sound sleep and appeared much more free from pain than he had been for many days before. He continued to sleep without changing his position till about one o'clock when he expired without a groan or a sigh. During his whole sickness, he was never heard to utter a repining word and in taking leave of his dearest friends, he would never seem to shed a tear or exhibit any sign of sorrow. His remains were interred in the Second Presbyterian Church on the corner of Mulberry or Arch and Third Streets by the side of his dear friend, the Reverend Gilbert Tennant. From this resting place, their dust and bones were removed to the burying ground on Arch Street when the church was removed. Mrs. Finley survived her husband many years the latter part of which time she was entirely blind, but bore the affliction with meek and cheerful submission. Chapter 20 Remarks on deathbed exercises with several illustrative examples. The cases of religious experience at the close of life which have been presented to the reader, furnish much reason for encouragement and hope to the real Christian. We learn from them that death, however terrible to nature, may be completely divested of its terrors, that the Christian religion, when it has been cordially embraced, has power to sustain the soul in the last conflict, that the supplies of grace may be so rich and abundant that the bed of death may be the happiest situation which the child of God ever occupied, and his last hours the most comfortable of his whole life. That it is possible for such a flood of divine consolation to be poured into the soul that the pains of the body are scarcely felt, by which we may understand how it was that the martyrs could rejoice in the midst of flames and on the rack. We learn also that these blessed communications of the joy of the Holy Ghost are conveyed to the soul through the promises of God and that all that is necessary to fill it with these divine consolations is a firm and lively faith. There is, in all these ecstatic and triumphant feelings, 
nothing miraculous, nothing different from the common mode of God's dealings with his people, except in the degree. The things of eternity are more clearly apprehended. Confidence in the promises is more unshaken. Submission to the will of God is more unreserved. And gratitude for his goodness more fervent. Another thing suggested by such happy deathbed exercises is that the dying saint never entertained a more humble sense of his own unworthiness than during the season of the anticipation of the joys of heaven. These experiences, therefore, furnish strong evidence of the truth of the doctrines of grace. Indeed, free grace is the predominant theme in the minds of these highly favoured servants of God. It is also highly worthy of our marked attention that the Lord Jesus Christ is precious to the dying believer in proportion as his consolations abound, his attributes all that he enjoys or hopes for to this blessed Redeemer. And he who loved him and died for him is most faithful to his gracious promises at this trying moment. Now when heart and flesh fail, he will be the strength of their hearts. Now he enables them to say with confidence, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff comfort me. Death is indeed a formidable enemy when armed with his envenomed sting, but when this sting is extracted, death is harmless. Death comes as a friend, to release us from a body of sin and misery. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law's. But when the law has received a full satisfaction, and all sin is pardoned through the blood of Christ, the sting exists no longer. There is no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, who is risen again. Precious in the sight of God is the death of his saints. The meek shall sing even on a dying bed. Here often the timid grow bold, the feeble strong. Here doubts and fears which harass the very weary pilgrim or the journey through are dismissed forever. And that joyful assurance is realized which had long been ardently desired and hoped for. Where else? But among real Christians, do we witness such happy scenes at the near approach of death? Can the infidel point to any of his associates who could thus exult in the prospect of death? Can the man of the world exhibit anything like this? Alas, they are driven away from all they love. They may die stupidly. They may be under an awful blinding delusion. But the positive joys of the believer they cannot experience. Now as we must all die, and that soon, ought we not to, ta not to take all pains and use all possible diligence to be ready to die the death of the righteous? When that awful hour shall arrive, worldly honours and worldly possessions will be nothing to us. Royal scepters and crowns and treasures will be utterly unavailing. But the humble believer, however wrecked with the pain of body, is safe in the hands of a kind Redeemer, who having himself experienced the pangs of death, knows how to sympathize with 
and succor his beloved disciples when they are called to their last trial. He will not then forsake those whom he has supported through their whole pilgrimage. His everlasting arms of love and faithfulness will be placed underneath them, and he will bear them as on eagles' wings. Truly then, for them to die is gain. They rest from their labors and exchange darkness, sin, and sorrow for perfect light, perfect purity, and perfect felicity. Lift up your heads then, ye servants of God, for the day of your redemption draws nigh. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. For some of us it must be near the dawn. The darkness will soon be past forever. Let us then rejoice in the hope of the glory of God and wait till our salvation comes. Now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. But it may be asked, do all real Christians die in such joy and triumph as those whose experience has been related? No, this is not pretended. Some no doubt die under a cloud and go out of the world in distressing doubt respecting their eternal destiny. It is to guard against such an event that we should exhort all professors of religion and include ourselves in the number to begin in time to make preparation for death. Dear brethren, let us look well to the foundation of our hope. We cannot bestow too much pains and diligence in making our calling and election sure. We shall never regret on a deathbed that we too, that we were too much concerned to secure the salvation of our souls or that we were too careful in making preparation for another world. Let us remember that our time on earth is short, and that whatever is done must be done quickly. There will be no opportunity of coming back to rectify what has been done amiss, or to supply what is wanting. Now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Let us work while it is day, knowing that the day, dark night cometh when no man can work. Let us then awake to righteousness. Let us watch and be sober. Let us put on the armor of light. And especially let us see to it that we have on the wedding garment, else we shall never find admittance to this marriage supper of the Lamb. The only robe which can bear the scrutinizing inspection of the King is the perfect and spotless robe of Christ's imputed righteousness. This will render us acceptable in the Beloved. With this we must put on the robe of inherent righteousness, for without holiness no man shall see the Lord, and with these two, though distinct, are never separated. Only the latter is never perfect. Until we come to the end of the course, this single consideration should reconcile us to the thoughts of death, that when we shall be freed from all sin, oh, how blessed is that state, where we shall see no more darkly through a glass, but face to face, where we shall know more in part than as we are known. O bright and delightful vision of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, surely this is worth dying for. But it may be asked, is there not evidence of too much excitement in the experiences which have been narrated? May not a part, at least, of the elevated and exhilarated feelings be the effect of an accelerated circulation? People who die of pulmonary consumption 
are apt to be sanguine and to indulge buoyant hopes even in regard to recovery. In answer, I would say that this may be admitted to have some effect in increasing the degree of excitement. But it never can account for the bright views and unspeakable joys which some experience. And the truth is, we are poor judges of the degree of elevated excitement which the sense of God's love will produce. It must be confessed that while we may admire and breathe after such an elevated and triumphant state of mind as was experienced by those of whom some account has been given, yet we cannot so readily sympathize with such high emotions as with a calm and deliberate frame of spirit. Indeed, it is here, as in health, when we see persons much excited in regard to religion or anything else, we do not place such entire confidence in what they utter as when the same persons calmly and soberly express their sentiments. The reason is that in all great excitement, the imagination and feelings predominate over the judgment. Experience teaches that in all such cases, there is a tendency to exaggeration and to the use of strong expressions. And it cannot be doubted that in some cases, the religious exaltation experience is somewhat delirious. The nervous system loses its tone, and although its agitations are violent, they are somewhat irregular and excessive, so as to produce an irrespressible thrilling through the soul. It is not wonderful that while the mysterious connection between soul and body is coming to an end, there should be in the emotions something new, and in the looks, tones and gestures something out of the common way. This is the altar or vitiate the nature of the pious exercises of the soul. Though it may modify them, and give them a peculiar aspect and expression. If any person chooses to suppose that, in some of the cases specified, while faith was triumphant and hopeful of assurance, there might be superadded an exhilaration arising out of the peculiar state of the body, he will not have me objecting. The last exercises of that useful and devoted man, Jeremiah Everts, were very remarkable for the degree of powerful excitement manifested, and the more remarkable because his mind was highly intellectual and very little subject to excitement in common. Still, it was well known to those intimate with him that when he was aroused, his feelings were very strong. Often, officious friends and physicians are extremely averse to have anything said on the subject of religion to the sick lest it should disturb their minds, and so increase the violence of the disease. I would not, it is true, admit every loquacious old man or woman into the chamber of a friend dangerously ill, but a discreet and pious counsellor is of great value at such a time. If the patient is hopefully pious, none can doubt the propriety and comfort of aiding such by holding forth to their view the rich promises of a faithful God. But even when the character of the sick is different, it often gives relief to have an opportunity of conversation with a pious friend or minister. Anxious feelings, pent up in the soul, and finding no vent, are far more injurious than a free expression of them. And if the person is in danger of death, will you, can you, be guilty of the cruelty of debarring him 
from the only opportunity of salvation which you may ever have? If you do, his blood will be found in your skirts. To show how erroneous the position is that religious conversation tends to injure the sick person by increasing his disease, I will relate a fact which fell under my observation. A young gentleman of fortune and liberal education had been for some months thinking seriously about his soul's salvation. But the work had not come to any maturity when by making too great an exertion of his bodily strength, he ruptured a large blood vessel in the lungs and was brought to death's door, not being able to speak above a low whisper. As he had been a pupil of mine, I was permitted to see him. When I inquired as to the state of his mind, he whispered in my ear that he was overwhelmed with the most awful darkness and terror. Not one ray of light dawned upon this miserable soul. I prayed with him and presented to him a few gospel invitations and promises and left him, never again expecting to see him alive. Next day when I called, the physician coming out of his room informed me that while they were waiting for his last breath, a favorable change seemed unexpectedly to have taken place and that he had revived a little. When I approached his bed, he looked joyfully in my face, pressed my hand, and said, All is well. I have found peace. This morning about the dawn, I had the most delightful view of Christ, and of his ability and willingness to save me. And upon inquiry, I found that that was a moment when the favorable change took place in his symptoms. Faith and joy accomplished what no medicine could, and acted as a reviving cordial to his dying body. He so far recovered as to live a number of years afterwards, though his lungs were never sound, and his consistent walk and conversation attested the reality of his change. He soon joined himself to the communion of the church, and died in her communion. While spending a summer in Germantown, near Philadelphia, I was sent for to visit a young man whom I had often seen. He did not belong to my charge, but two pious ladies who did were his friends and had come out of the city to nurse him. He had a hemorrhage of the lungs which left little hope, room to hope for recovery. As he was mild and a moral man, I did not know but that he might be a professor of religion, but upon asking him a question respecting his hope, he frankly told me that he had been sceptical for many years and had no belief that the gospel was divine. I never felt more at a loss. The man was too weak to attend to argument, and if I could by reasoning convince him of his error, it would not be a saving faith, and he must die before this process could be gone through. I found that his infidelity afforded no comfort in a dying hour, and that he wished he could believe in Christ. It occurred to me that the word of God contained light and energy in itself, and that if he could not attend to the external evidences, the beams of truth might shine in upon his soul, and thus generate a saving faith by the efficient aid of the Spirit. After pointing out the probable sources of his scepticism, 
I requested the ladies who were attending on him to read certain portions of the gospel to him as he could bear it, for he was very low. <coughs> this was done. The next day when I came to see him, he declared his doubts were all scattered and that he had hope in Christ. Afterwards he was never able to converse, but as far as is known, he died in hope. I never saw anyone approach death so deliberately and composedly as the late Robert Ray, pastor of the Church of Freehold in New Jersey. He had spent the winter, winter at St. Augustine with the hope of restoring his health, but came home more diseased than before he went. His lungs were deeply affected, and he foresaw that his end was approaching. But as long as he was able to speak, he caused himself to be carried to the church and to be assisted into the pulpit, where he would preach and exhort until his breath failed, when he would pant as if about to die, and then be conveyed home as he came. This was done not once or twice, but for many weeks, for he said he must die, he might as well die preaching. He felt a strong desire to be the means of saving the people committed to his charge, and he hoped that a voice of affectionate warnings in the grave might have the effect of awaking some of them. As he severed but little acute pain, he appeared, until his dying day, as calm and cheerful as a man long absent from home would, when the time came to return to his friends. He conversed as familiar and composedly about his approaching change, as if there was nothing formidable in it. Indeed, it had no terrors for him. Even when death was upon him, having observed some of his neighbors coming in, he said, Well, you have come to see your pastor die. He then remarked that his feelings were very peculiar, such as he had never experienced before, and without any perturbation of mind or bodily agony, he gently fell asleep. Wishing in these experiences of dying saints, to give as great a variety as compatible with my limits. I will now extract an account of the late illness of Mrs. Susan Huntington of Boston, taken by, down by her pastor, Dr. Wisner, after his visit to her sick room. Tuesday, October the 28th, 1823, called on Mrs. Huntington about half past nine in the morning. Found that she had failed considerably since my last visit. To an inquiry respecting the state of her mind, she said, I think I have felt more of the presence of Christ than when I saw you last. I have not had those strong views and joyful feelings which, with which I have sometimes been favored. My mind is weak. I cannot direct and fix my thoughts as I once could, but I think I have fled for refuge to hold, lay hold on the hope set before me in the precious gospel, and he who is the foundation of that hope will never forsake me. Then with a more interesting expression of countenance, she said, I trust we shall meet in heaven and spend an eternity in praising our dear Redeemer. I fear, I feel, she said, that I have been very, very unfaithful, but he is very merciful. His blood cleanses from all sin, and I trust he has blotted out my sins in the book of his remembrance. 
Oh, what should we do without Christ? As much debt is to free grace at the end of our course as at the beginning, observed his pastor. More, far more, she replied, for we sin against greater light and love after we are born again. Yes, it is all free grace. If it were not, what would become of me? It was answered, you would have perished, justly perished. Yes, he replied, what a glorious plan. What a precious Saviour. Oh, that I could love him more. Pray that I may love and glorify him forever. On Friday, October the 31st, found her more comfortable. She said, My mind has generally been in a peaceful frame since I saw you, but I want to realize the presence and preciousness of Christ more distinctly and constantly than my great weakness permits me to do. In answer to some remarks on the covenant of grace, she said, glorious covenants, precious promises. I have given myself and body to him, in whom they are yea and amen, and I do not fear. I desire him to do with me as it shall please him. Tuesday, November 4th. To the usual inquiry, she replied, Mrs. Graham accurately describes my feelings when she says, Thus far the Lord has brought me through the wilderness, bearing, chastising, forgiving, restoring. I am near to Jordan's blood. May my blessed high priest and ark of the covenant lead on my staggering steps. The little further I have to go. And on December the 4th, she breathed her last in the faith and hope of the gospel. As in the preceding account of Mrs. Huntington, mention is made of Mrs. Graham of New York. It may be in place to give a few particulars of this wise woman, as she may properly be called, during her last illness. Foreseeing that her end was near, she sent for Mrs. Christie, a dear friend whom, between whom and herself an agreement had been made that whichever was first summed away should be attended in our nurse moments by the other. To her son-in-law, Mr. Bethune, whom she saw standing by, she said, My oh dear, dear son, I am going to leave you. I am going to my Saviour. He answered, I know that when you do go from us, it will be to the Saviour. But my dear mother, it may not be the Lord's turn now to call you to himself. Yes, said she, now is the time. And oh, I could weep the sin. Her words were accompanied with her tears. Have you any doubts then, my dear friend? Asked Mrs. Christie. Oh no, replied she. I have no more doubt of going to my Saviour than if I were already in his arms. My guilt is all transferred. He has counselled all my debt. Yet I could weep for sins against so good a God. It seems to me there must be weeping even in heaven. When her friend and pastor, Dr. Mason, came to see her, they had a very interesting interview. At the close of which, he inquired if there was anything in particular for which he should pray. She said, The Lord will direct, and immediately offered up this short prayer. Lord, direct thy servant in prayer. During her sickness, she was much of the time lethargic, and it was often difficult to rouse her. But when at any time waked for a moment, she would utter some sweet words, 
such as peace, indicating a happy state in their mind. Dr. Mason, in his funeral sermon, said, This may truly be called falling asleep in Jesus. All terror seemed to be removed, and her countenance was placid, and looked younger than before her illness. At a quarter past twelve o'clock, on the 27th of July, 1814, without a struggle or a groan, her spirit winged its flight from the mansion of clay to the realms of glory. <coughs> Chapter 21 Deathbed Exercises of Richard Baxter and Thomas Scott Dr. Bates, in his funeral sermon occasioned by the death of Richard Baxter, 1615-1901, has given us an interesting account of his last days, some part of which I will extract as furnishing example, not of a highly excited state of being, but of a truly pious, calm, submissive frame of mind. Few persons who ever lived here given more convincing evidence of fervent piety throughout a long life than this devoted servant of God. His end corresponded with the tenor of his life and the religion which he inculcated in his sermons. He continued, says Dr. Bates, to preach so long, notwithstanding his wasted and languishing body, that the last time he almost died in the pulpit, it would doubtless have been his joy to be transfigured in the mount, but long after he felt the approaches of death and was confined to his death sick bed. Death reveals the secrets of the heart. Then words are spoken with most feeling and least affectation. This excellent saint was the same in his life and his death. His last hours were spent in preparing others and himself to appear before God, he said to his friends who came to see him, You come hither to learn to die. I am not the only person that must go this way. I can assure you that your whole life, be it ever so long, is little enough to prepare for death. Have a care of this vain, deceitful world and the lust of the flesh. Be sure you choose God for your portion, heaven for your home, God's glory for your end, and his word for your rule. And then you need never fear that we shall meet in comfort. Never was penitent sinner more humble. Never was a sincere believer more calm and comfortable. He acknowledged himself to be the vilest dunghill worm. It was his usual expression. That ever went to heaven. He admired the divine conversation to us, often saying, Lord, what is man? What am I, a vile worm, to the great God? Many times he prayed, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And thank God that this was left on record in the gospel as an effectual prayer. He said, God may justly condemn me for the best duty I have ever performed. All my hopes are from free mercy of God in Christ. After slumber he awakened and said, I shall rest from my labors. <coughs> The minister present said, and your works shall follow you, to whom he replied, no works, I will leave out works, 
if God will grant me the other. When a friend was comforting him with the good which many had received by his preaching and writing, he said, I was but a pen in God's hands, and what praise is due to a pen. He resigned submission to the will of God in his sharp sickness was eminent. When extremity constrained him earnestly to pray to God for his release by death, he would check himself. It is not for me to prescribe when thou wilt, what thou wilt, and how thou wilt. Being in great anguish, he said, Oh, how unsearchable are his judgments, and his ways past finding out. The reaches of his providence we cannot fathom. And to his friends, do you think the worst of religion for what you see me suffer? Being often asked how it was within a man, he replied, I have a well-grounded assurance of my eternal happiness and great peace and comfort within. He said, flesh must perish, and we must feel the perishing of it, and that though this judgment submitted, yet sense would still make me him groan. He grew great comfort from that description in Hebrews 12.22, that he was going to the innumerable company of angels, and to the general assembly, and the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling, that speaketh better things than the blood of Abel. That scripture, he said, deserved a thousand thousand thoughts. At another time, he said he derived great comfort and sweetness in repeating the Lord's Prayer, and was sorry some good people were prejudiced against the use of it, for there were all necessary petitions for the soul and body contained in it. He gave excellent counsels to young ministers that visited him, and earnestly prayed to God to bless their labors and make them very successful in turning many souls to Christ. He expressed great hope, great joy, in the hopes that God would do a great deal of good by them, and that they were of moderate and peaceful spirits. He often prayed that God would be merciful to this miserable, distracted world, and that he would preserve his church and interest in it. He advised his friends to beware of self-conceit, as a sin that would likely to ruin the nation. I visited him with a very worthy friend, Mr. Mather from New England, the day before he died. I said to him, You are now approaching your long-desired home. He answered, I believe, I believe. He expressed great willingness to die, and during his sickness, when asked how he did, his reply was, almost well. His joy was most remarkable when, in his apprehension, death was nearest, and his spiritual joy was at length consummated in eternal joy. On the day of his death, a great trembling and coldness extorted strong cries from him for pity and relief from heaven, when cries and agonies continued for some time, till at length he ceased, and lay in patient expectation of his change. The last words he spoke to me on being informed that I was come to see him were, Oh, I thank him, I thank him. And turning his eyes to me, said, The Lord teach you how to die.
To the last, I never could perceive his peace and heavenly hopes assaulted all the spirit. I have often heard him greatly lament that he felt no greater liveliness in what appeared so great and clear to him, and so much desired by him. He told me he knew it should be well with him when he was gone. He wondered to hear others speak of their sensible and passionate and strong desire to die, and of their transports of spirit when sensible of their approaching death, when, though he thought he knew as much as they, and had as rational satisfaction as they could have, that his soul was safe, he never could feel their sensible consolations. I asked whether much of this was not to be resolved in the bodily constitution. He told me he thought it might be so. The wicked and groundless report was circulated that he was greatly troubled and sceptical thoughts before he died. Matthew Sylvester, who was with him during his whole sickness, declared there was not the least foundation whatever for such a report. But the devil seems to be greatly envious of the comfortable death of God's people. And therefore his agents are busy in circulating slanders against the saints in regard to this matter. So although Calvin ended his days in great tranquility and in the full exercise of faith and enjoyment of reason, his enemies circulated the report that he died in all the horrors of despair. Thus also, when Augustus' top lady was near his end, it was circulated that he had renounced all those doctrines of grace for which he was so zealous in his life. Happily, the report reached him before his decease, which gave him the opportunity of contradicting it and leaving his dying testimony in favor of those doctrines. His dying experience was of the most joyful and triumphant kind and would do, and would do to be classed with those of John Janeway, Edward Payson, and Dr. Samuel Finley, but we have not room for it, and many others. The two Henrys, father and son, so eminent for their piety and usefulness, were carried off by sudden and painful diseases, which afforded little opportunity for much conversation. They experienced, however, much of the divine aid and support. John Howe's death was exactly in character with his life and writings. <coughs> it may be thought that all the specimens of the experience of believers during their last illness have been of the favorable kind and far above what is witnessed in the greater number of Christians on their dying bed. It may be so. But I wish to remark that in all my life I have known few persons who lived like Christians when in health who did not, in their approach to death, manifest as much hope and fortitude in their trying hour as could reasonably have been expected from the character of their piety. In many cases, as I have before stated, the comfort and assurance of some timid and desponding believers have risen far above what any of their friends dare to hope. In general, the result of my observation is that the pious find death less terrible on their near approach to the event than when it was viewed at a distance. Some persons have naturally a much greater dread of death than others, though their piety may be more lively. Of this class was the late Thomas Scott, the author of the commentary on the Bible. Few men of this period gave strong evidence 
of deep-rooted and constant attachment to the Saviour and this devoted man. In the service of his master, he was most laborious and faithful, and it would be difficult to name any man whose evangelical labours have been attended with happier results. He contributed much in conjunction with such men as Romain, Newton, Cecil, and others, to extend the influence of vital religion far and wide through the established Church of England. And his usefulness was not confined to his own country or to the period of his life. In the United States, I know no writings which have been so extensively circulated and which have had so powerful an effect in correcting prevailing errors in religion and promoting sound evangelical views of scriptural truth. I have selected the dying experience of this man, of undoubted and eminent piety, for the reason hinted at in the beginning of this chapter, because his exercises, though deeply serious, were not for the most of the time remarkably comfortable, and in no part of his illness did he express much elevated joy. I think it right to view God's people in their various states and frames as they approach the end of their pilgrimage. A pious clergyman remarked in relation to the exercise of Dr. Scott that men of profound thought and deep reflection are not commonly so joyful on a dying bed as Christians of less understanding and less experience. And he referred to Bunyan as of the same mind who represents, represents Christian, his chief pilgrim, as almost overwhelmed with the waters of Jordan, while the less experienced pilgrim, hopeful, goes over with very little difficulty or danger. I cannot say that I can altogether concur in this remark. It may often happen that the unlettered Christian has a livelier faith than the profoundly learned theologian, and of course will be likely to have a calmer, happier exit from the world. But if men of talents, men of talents and learning possess a vigorous evangelical faith, they are as likely to rejoice on a dying bed as any other, as is evidenced by the examples of Rivet, Baxter, Howe, etc. The difference between the comforts of dying saints may be attributed first to divine sovereignty, which distributes grace and consolation as seemeth good unto him. Secondly, to bodily temperament, some persons being more fearful than others and more prone to suspect their own sincerity. And thirdly, to the nature of the disease by which the body is brought down to the grave, it is the tendency of some diseases. It is the tendency of some diseases, while they do not disturb the intellect, to accelerate the spirits and enliven the imagination while a distressing depression or perturbation is the effect of others, to say nothing of the different degrees of pain experienced by different persons. And we know that some diseases have the deplorable, stupefying effect. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. 
our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.